to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, Watermark Church. How we doing? All right. Hey, it's good to see you. My name's Timothy Atik. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And I'm so glad to get to open up the Word of God with you this morning. I know Bethany just prayed, but I want us to pray again. What I want to ask you to do is I just want to ask you to pray for yourself. And so I really believe that anytime we open up this book, it's like we're opening up the mouth of God. We've gathered here this morning. What a shame it would be to go to all the effort you've gone to to get here and to leave here without hearing from God if he wants to speak to you. So if you will, just take a second. And just pray for yourself. Say, God, would you speak to me this morning? And then if you would take a second and pray for me and ask God to speak through me to you. Well, Lord, we do want to hear from you. I pray that every single person in this room right now would meet with you in here from you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago, my wife and I, we went to see a marriage counselor just because we needed to tune some things up in our marriage. And the counselor wanted to do this exercise with us where she had us look at each other and try and share with the other person what we believe the problems are in our marriage without using the word you. So like no use statements, which is a tough exercise because if there's problems, you always want to blame the other person for them, right? And so uh, that, that's a difficult exercise. So you have to say things like, I find myself feeling frustrated when the last piece of dessert disappears, but I've been looking forward to it all day and it's not there. And you're like, that's what you fight about? Hey, dessert's a real deal in the Atik household. And it will divide, no doubt. But I was just thinking about that exercise, and I thought, you know what, what if we pulled that exercise into the spiritual realm? There's the age-old question, if you were to die tonight, and you were to stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? My question is, could you do the reverse? Could you answer that question only using you statements? Like, no I statements at all. Could you answer God without using I at all? So no, I grew up in a Christian home. No, I prayed and asked Jesus into my heart when I was eight years old. No, I've tried really hard to be a good person or I've been going to church since I was a kid. No, I've been getting my life back together. No I statements, only you statements, could you do it? The reason that I even ask you that, the reason I even put that in your mind is this morning the one truth that I want to be overwhelmingly clear to you is this, salvation is a miracle, period. That's it. Your salvation, my salvation, they are miracles. So if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, We need to daily live in the reality that when we could do nothing, Jesus did everything. And let me just say this. If I just 
said salvation is a miracle and it just kind of flew past your heart without just settling in, like if that's a truth that you're kind of over, you need to get back under it. Because that is never a truth that we should outgrow. And my hope is that it would prompt new, renewed gratitude for your salvation this morning. Salvation is a miracle. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, then the good news is for some of you, God is working in a miracle. A working a miracle in your life right now. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Uh, that is where we've been, and that's where we will be. A few weeks ago, a teaching pastor, John Elmore, uh, kicked us off in this months-long series that we're doing through the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and uh, I texted John this week, and I was like, man, your preaching has found a new gear. I found myself so deeply encouraged by how John unpacked for us the first 17 verses of the book. And I hope that you're excited about journeying through 1 Corinthians. I mean, it's like a reality TV show. It's just packed full of drama. The reason that we watch reality TV is for the drama. That's the church at Corinth. It's just loads of drama, and we get to eavesdrop on all of it and learn from it. But the, 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 there is something so beautiful and so powerful about just opening up this book, reading it, seeking to understand it, and then applying it. Watermark Community Church will never be just opinion time with the speaker. Like, this is what we do here. We stake our life on the truth that is in this book, so every Sunday, you can expect to come, and we will open up this book, and we will just study it. We'll read it, we'll seek to understand it, and then we'll leave and live it out, all right? So, so that is what our, our aim is. Now, uh, where we're going this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, I need to give you a little context of what was valued in the city of Corinth. What you need to understand is that Corinth was a city that prized human wisdom. And so orders, philosophers would travel through Corinth, they would come in, they would set up shop, and people would gather around them, pay money to them, fanboy and fangirl over them. People loved hearing eloquent speakers. And the interesting thing about human wisdom and orders and philosophers in the city of Corinth is is it's possible that they valued the delivery more than the content. They cared more about how it was said than what was actually said. The more eloquent the speaker, the more powerful and more prestigious and the more famous that person was. And so people wanted to gather around the most eloquent speakers of the day. Because those were the people in a city that valued things like power, glory, honor, and success. Those were the people who were ascribed glory, honor, power, and success. So people would gather around these orders and philosophers and listen to them because by getting around them, they thought they might taste power and success and honor themselves. So... 
When you think about human wisdom in the city of Corinth, if there was, if the, the orders or the philosophers of the day were going to chart a path to salvation, what would that path look like? It would be a path in terms of getting right with God, it would be a path that would include things like intelligence, upbringing, education, influence, and success. So if, if people in the city of Corinth were answering the question, if you were to stand before God and you were, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? That they might say things like, well, ha have you seen my education? Have you seen the philosophers that I've been listening to? Have you seen the family that I was born into? Have you seen what I've accomplished and the success that I've had? And what Paul is going to do is he's going to step in and he is just going to dismantle the human wisdom of his day and, and ours. And as we look at what he's going to say in verses 18 through 31, we're going to see four reasons why your salvation is, is a miracle, period. Four reasons why your salvation is a miracle. Look with me, verse 18. Let me just read you the whole passage. It says this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Number one, your salvation is a miracle because the most foolish message has become the most powerful message in your life. Did you see what Paul said in verse 18? He said, for the word of the cross, that's a reference to the gospel message, the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, what's the gospel message? It's, it's the power of God. And so Paul's drawing a distinction. He's saying there's really two types of people in this world. The, the main distinction is not Greek and Jew. It's, it's perishing or being saved. That's the main distinction. Are you perishing or are you being saved? And it all depends on, on what you do with 
the gospel message. And he's saying to, to some people, the gospel is the most foolish message in the world. It's, it's folly. Think about it. You, you take a culture that, that valued prestige and power. What's the message of the gospel? God became a man. God was born in a podunk village surrounded by farm animals. God was rejected by his, the very people he came to save. God's own followers deserted him. Did you see Paul's wording? He doesn't say, for the word of the resurrection. See, the resurrection is the best thing that our message has going for us because it's the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. The resurrection is where victory is found. Paul doesn't lead with the resurrection. He leads with the cross. The most shameful aspect of the message to those who are outside of the faith. See, you have to understand that when a Greek would hear that God was crucified, that's a problem. Because crucifixion was the most shameful form of death on the planet at the time in the eyes of a Greek citizen, a Roman citizen. Because crucifixion was reserved only for insurrectionists and slaves. And so what's the gospel message? God was crucified. To the Jew, how would they perceive it? Well, Jews actually had in their law, listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 21, it says, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So to, to the Jew, the message is, not only did God become man, but God hung on a tree. But the law says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. So you're saying that our hope and our salvation is found in someone who incurred the most shameful form of punishment and the type of punishment that's actually cursed by God. One commentator put it this way. He said, the most powerful God appears to be the most powerless. Victory is won by giving up life, not taking it. Selfish domination of others is discredited. Shame is removed, how? Through divine identification with the shamed in a shameful death. To any educated man in the city of Corinth, this would have sounded like madness. And the reality is that the gospel is still foolishness in our society today. It's still foolishness. Like I, when I was serving at, at Breakaway Ministries in College Station, I got to be good friends with the leaders of the Muslim Student Association on the campus of Texas A&M University. And I remember sitting with them and I explained the gospel to them. And although Muslims have a high view of Jesus, what they told me is, is the cross of Jesus Christ was unnecessary. It was unnecessary. We don't need we don't need a mediator. We don't need someone to do business with God on our behalf because God can just forgive us directly. Like he can just look at our sins and decide to forgive them. What are they saying? They're saying the cross of Christ, it, it's, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. Uh, comedians have an important voice in society because they often articulate what others are too afraid to say. Here's what 
Uh, George Carlin said years ago, many of you have never heard of him, others of you know exactly who he is, but he was really a pioneer with a certain type of comedy, and here's what he said about religion. He said, we created God in our own image and likeness. Religion convinced the world that there's an invisible man in the sky who watches everything you do, and there's 10 things he doesn't want you to do, or else you'll go to a burning place with a lake of fire until the end of eternity, but he loves you, and he needs your money. He's all-powerful, but he can't handle money. What's his point? It's foolish. Thomas Paine, one of the founding fathers of our nation, said this, the story of the redemption will not stand examination. That man should redeem himself from the sin of eating an apple by committing a murder on Jesus Christ is the strangest system of religion ever set up. What's he saying? It's, it's foolish. And then for others today, the gospel is just unnecessary and irrelevant. I'm just going to tell you that I, I see what was playing out in the church in Corinth happening in churches across our nation. I, I remember talking to a friend a few years ago, and he said something prophetic. He said, he said there's a shift in the church today from the expositor to the orator. What was he saying? He's saying that, that people no longer value someone opening up this book studying it and unpacking exactly what it says. People value more someone who is eloquent of speech, who can basically lead a pep rally and make you feel good. And so there are people going to churches all over the nation who don't know Jesus, but they go to church and leave feeling good about themselves, feeling, uh, feeling good with God, and sensing no need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That, that's a problem. But people believe that the, the gospel message is foolish. It's unnecessary. It's irrelevant. Like if you're going to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? You know what you say? You say, God, I've tried hard to love myself well, and I've tried to love other people well. Because that's what people boil religion down to today. For so many, the gospel is absolute ridiculous. And yet, for people in this room and people all over the city and all over this world who consider themselves followers of Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel isn't foolish. It's the power of God. Like, we stake our life on it. It's changed our story. Our story now as followers of Jesus Christ is we were dead and now we're alive. So this morning, if you put your faith and trust in Christ and you leave here and you go to lunch and you meet a friend who wasn't here and they were like, how is church? You can say, well, when I got there, I was dead and when I left, I was alive. It was a good morning at church. <laughs> but that's, that's our story. We stake our life on it. We change our values around it. We get up early on Sunday mornings and we gather together because we believe it is worthy of our lives and worthy of our celebration. So the question is, why do we get it? Like, why do we hear the gospel and not think it's foolish, but we think it's actually worthy of our lives? Why is that the case? Well, you might say, well, because I listen to this, this one preacher and he just, he just speaks in a way that I get. Well, the funny thing is that same preacher speaks to other people who still don't believe, so that can't be it. You might say, well, I 
made the smart decision. You know, when we had kids, we needed to get back in the church. We started coming to church, and it just makes sense. Yeah, but there's people who come to church every week to be responsible, and they don't give a rip about Jesus. No, the reason that the most foolish message has become the most powerful message is because a miracle has happened in your life. And the Spirit of God has done what the Spirit of God does. If you want to just brush up, on, brush up on your theology of the Holy Spirit, let me just tell you the jobs of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He illuminates our minds and our hearts to truth. He regenerates our souls, meaning He awakens our souls to life and he sanctifies us. He takes the word of God and he shows us how it is to be lived out in our lives. A miracle has taken place. So I just want to invite you to think back. When in your life did the gospel message begin to make sense? I know for me it was early in life when I was going to a Christian day camp called Camp El Har. And then I was involved in the middle school and high school groups at Northwest Bible Church with some, some people who were consistently sharing truth with me. And when I look back now, what I realized is that there was a miracle in the making all along. When was it for you? Number two, your salvation is a miracle because it is a result of God's initiation, not man's inclinations, okay? Your salvation is a miracle because it's a result of God's initiation, not man's inclinations, okay? Look at what Let's just walk through it. Verse 20. Look at what Paul says. He says, where's the, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, what Paul isn't doing is extending an invitation. He's not like, hey, uh, is there any philosophers who want to talk about it? Any uh, teachers of the law that want to get together? No, this is a victor taunting the one he's conquered. This is Brad Pitt and Troy saying, is there no one else? This is Paul. He's saying, come at me. Where is, where is the leading experts of the day? Where is the leaders? Like, where, where is the, the philosopher? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater? What, what Paul is really asking is, hey, uh, where, where is anyone in society today who can chart a path to salvation Without the cross of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying it doesn't exist. It does not exist. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Watch this, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, that's in the sovereign, perfect plan of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. You know what he's saying? He's saying no one, there is no path to knowing God and knowing salvation based on your own inclinations. Like you won't just wake up one day and find your way to a right relationship with God. It is not, it's not possible it is impossible for you to come to God based on your own inclinations. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God. Watch what does please God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach 
to save those who believe. What pleases God is to save people through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus. But verse 22, he says, for Jews demand signs in Greek seek wisdom. What's he saying? He's saying we always want God to operate on our terms. Like we want to control, tro- we want to control God. He says, Jews seek a sign. What did, what did Jews want? They wanted a ruling, conquering king to come and deliver them from out from under the oppression of Rome. He's like, that's what Jews want. They want a sign. They want God to operate how they want him to operate. What do Greeks want? They want power. They want status. So they want wisdom that's going to elevate them in society. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So he's saying, look, everyone wants God to operate on their terms. But God only operates on his terms. You know how God saves? Through Christ crucified. And that was like highly offensive to both Jews and Greeks. Christ crucified, it's an oxymoron. It's like saying fried ice. Like it's not a thing. Because think about it. Jews wanted a ruling, conquering king. So they wanted a Messiah. Christ means Messiah. And Christ carries like royalty in power. But then you attach Christ to crucified, the most shameful form of death, and it doesn't make sense. They're like, whoa, 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 no, 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 we want the conquering king. And Paul's like, yeah, yeah, he is a conquering king. Do you know how he conquers? He conquers by being conquered. That's, that's Christ. He has conquered Satan, sin, and death by being conquered on the cross. And so it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Greeks. What does it look like today? What this looks like is is we want God to operate on our terms. We we want to believe that we can get to God and we can figure out salvation based on our own inclinations. Anytime salvation is left in the hands of man, man will always try and get to God. I want you to think about it like this. Like, I'm just, full disclosure, I hate using maps. So if it's a choice between using a map or just hoping for the best, I like to hope for the best. (laughs) And just like kind of find my way. Well, that's fine on the streets of Dallas. It might take some time. But it doesn't work in the spiritual realm. Because when man is left to himself, here's what we do. We begin to rationalize and and we follow our inclinations. Well, you know what, as long as I'm religious. Like, as long as I'm religious, this is what happens when people get married and have kids. It's like, you know what, we need to get serious. We need to raise our kids with with good values. So as long as we get to church, as long as we do religious things, that's all that matters. Or, you know what, as long as I'm a good person. You know what, you look around, you can always find someone doing a worse job than you. You just gotta look for them. But when you find them, you latch on to them, you're like, that's my guy. That's the guy that makes me feel really good about me. Or you know what, as long as I believe something, this is pervasive on college campuses right now, it's like, you know what, 
you do you, I'll do me, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. It's kind of like a ski, like a, like a mountain with ski lifts all coming from different directions. Ultimately, they all lead to the top. You do you, I'll do me. It, it, you just need to believe something. Or you know what, as long as I ask Jesus into my heart and then live a good life, we always want to add to something. We always want to make it about us getting to God because we want to feel in control. We always want the credit. Salvation is our doing. But your salvation is a miracle because it is the result of God's initiation, not man's inclinations. Okay, look back at what Paul says. Do you see it? He says, verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, meaning we try and do salvation on our terms. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are, what's the next word? Called. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Do you see it? It's God's initiation. Those who are saved are those whom God has come to and called. This is the, the theological concept of of election. It's the idea that, that you don't find God, you are found by God. It's that you're not a Christian because you have pursued God, it's that you have been pursued by God. And you can look at some point in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can look back, and if, you're, if, you, if you really dial in, there's you can look back and there was a time where God just reached into your life and he called you by name. And you came. He called you. That's why you're saved. It's a miracle. Because God took thought of you and he initiated with you. And some of you are here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and yet Jesus is whispering into your life and he's saying, that's what I'm doing to you now. I am calling you to come and live life with me. Number three, your salvation is a miracle because God's selection was without condition. Your salvation is a miracle because God's selection was without condition. Look at verse 26, okay? I'm just gonna warn you. Paul can be super awkward. You, you don't believe me, watch. He says, for consider your calling. It's funny because he's like, he's like, uh, let me think of a good example. Well, you guys are a great example. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. It's great. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. <laughs> Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. It's like, Paul, we get the point. He's like, you guys are dumb. You were born poor. You're pretty weak. It's like, dude, what, what do we do to you? He's like, but God chose what is foolish. He just like doubles down. It's like, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak, there you are again, in the world to shame the strong. Watch this, God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not, he's like, you're not. Like, whatever it is, you're not. 
<laughs> even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What is Paul saying? He's like, look, uh, no college is name dropping your name because you didn't go to college. None of y'all have initials after your name. None of y'all are on thir any 30 under 30 list. None of y'all are social media influencers. And yet God chose you. Isn't that interesting? He's like, you people in Corinth, you're God's people, not because of you, but because of God. So let, let me just explain it this way. I, I want to ask you to think of the most annoying person in your life right now. Don't elbow your spouse right now. Don't do it. <laughs> when I say the most annoying person in your life, I'm talking about the person in your life that's just crushing life to the point that it's annoying. Like they know everyone and everyone knows them and likes them. They're super interesting, super adventurous, and super successful. They always have job offers on the table. Everything they touch seems to turn the gold. They're super good looking and fit. And I'm talking about the type of fit that can only come through exercise and genetics. Like, <laughs> no matter how hard you try, you're never going to look like that. And when they were dating their spouse, people looked at them and said, y'all are going to have the most beautiful kids. And it turns out they do have the most beautiful kids. <laughs> it's super annoying. The worst part of it is that they're incredibly nice. Do you know that person? Maybe you are that person. <laughs> What's amazing is that there will be plenty of people like that who will spend eternity apart from God while the thief that hung next to Jesus on the cross enjoys him for all of eternity. Sin is the great equalizer. When God calls someone to himself, it says everything about his grace and nothing about that person's goodness. And so just realize, some of you guys get this. I mean, like you, you think about your past and you think about some choices you make and every day you're like, I cannot believe that God would choose to love me. And you get it. And that's a beautiful thing. And number four, your salvation is a miracle don't miss this. Your salvation is a miracle because without Jesus, you had nothing, but in Jesus, you have everything. Without Jesus, you had nothing, but in Jesus, you have everything. Look back at verse 28. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So do you see what he's doing? Uh, taking culture into account, he's like, all these people are listening to these orders that they value power and prestige and success, and he's saying he took those people who are pursuing power and success thinking that somehow that might make them right with God, and instead he chose you. Those who are weak and, and not very smart. Why did he do it? He did it to show that that without him, you have nothing. You have nothing. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It goes back to that question. If you were to stand before God and he were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, 
Some of you think that you're going to begin to point to stuff like, God, let me just direct your attention to my church attendance. It was pretty great. And I don't know if you saw my charitable giving statements for my tax records. You're welcome. And God's going to be like, what are you talking about? If you put your trust in what you have, what you have will not be much. Do not put your trust in what you have. Put your trust in who has you. And I just need you to know, like I'm a church kid. And, and I lean towards being a rule follower. Just think about that. Are you more of a rule follower or a rule breaker? That's a good topic for discussion at lunch. I lean towards following the rules. Like growing up, like I took pride in the fact that I didn't do some of the things that other people were doing outwardly. I found some identity in that. I found some superiority in that. And what Paul is saying is that is nothing before God. It's nothing. No human being might boast in the presence of God. That word boast, it's the idea of putting your trust or your confidence in something. He's like, look, you have nothing before God to put your confidence in that would make God be like, oh my gosh, we've got to get that guy up here. Have you seen what he's been doing? Have you seen how generous he is? You see how, he, how selfless he is? Man, that's the type of guy we need in heaven. No. Verse 30, and because of him, because of him, because, because of him, who gets the credit? Him. Because of him, you are in Christ, because he's called you, he's worked a miracle, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom. Wisdom there is synonymous with salvation. He's saying, because of Jesus Christ, who became to us salvation from God, here's what's true of us, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So, because of the miracle that God has done, Without Jesus, you had nothing, but in Jesus, you have everything. He says, you have righteousness. What's righteousness? It's, a, it's an analogy. He's putting us into God's courtroom. Even though we are guilty because of our sin, we are declared in right standing because Jesus Christ took our guilt. It says that we have sanctification. It's the idea of being, we've been made holy, that in God's eyes, we are we are spotless and clean. So I just want you to think about that because so many of us wake up and we're followers of Christ, but we operate under the, the cloud of disappointment. That if I were to ask you, how does God feel about you? You'd say, disappointed. And yet because of what Christ has done, we have righteousness, we have sanctification. There is nothing in your life that God looks at and says, see, that's the problem with you. That is what is so disappointing about you. That's what makes it so hard to love you. I'll do it, but that's what makes it so... No, there is none of that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we have redemption. That's a, it's an analogy. It's a slavery analogy where Jesus has r rescued us from slavery and he has set us free. This is what is true of us. Not because of what we have, but because of who has us. I'll explain it this way. Um, 
when my firstborn Noah was about two years old, he went to preschool and he began to bring home uh, artwork. And it's, uh, it's been true for my other two kids as well, but they go off to preschool and they begin to bring home what they might call art. And uh, in their artwork at a really young age, it'd be like, like a white piece of paper with one purple crown line drizzled across it. And I'm like, teachers, really, are we doing this? Like this, you're sending this home? And it makes me sound like a really bad dad. There was nothing praiseworthy about that artwork. <laughs> I did, hey, I gotta learn at some point. No. Uh, but then there were other days where two-year-old Noah would bring home artwork that was like, glitter and glued on cotton balls, and it was like, dude, you did not do this work. <laughs> Someone did this work on your behalf. I didn't have that conversation with them, but man, I celebrated. I was like, dude, you did this. This is amazing. Look at this. Oh my gosh, the glitter, the cotton balls. Well done. Look at you, Picasso. And I just think about that, and I just think, you know what? If you were to take all of your best days, like the days where you crush it, and you were to pull them all together, all of your, where you lived your best life, and you were to present them to God, you need to know they would be nothing more than a white piece of paper with a purple crown line drizzled across it. Nothing praiseworthy about the art of your life. And yet Jesus Christ went to the cross for you. Jesus Christ conquered death for you you. God the Father celebrates the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. And so now you experience all of the joy, all of the pleasure, all the satisfaction that God has for you because you are in Christ and you have the righteousness of Christ and you have been sanctified by Christ and you have been set free by Christ. It's Jesus who has done all of the work. That's why it's a miracle. So what's our response? Here's our response. Our salvation exists for his exaltation. That's it. Our salvation exists for his exaltation. You find it right there in the last verse, verse 31. Let the one who boasts, remember, if you put your trust, boast, put your confidence in anything, let the one who boasts, boast in, in the Lord. That's it. it. If you are over this truth, I need you to get back under the truth. Because we never outgrow the reality that your salvation and my salvation, they are Miracles. So let me just encourage you. Well, how do we respond? What does it look like for our salvation to exist for His exaltation? We're here, we're, here is a start. Before you even leave here this morning, like raise your hands to God, bend on your knees to God, sit with Him, and you sit with Him, and allow yourself to pour out your gratitude for Him for the miracle that He's done in your life. And then every day this week, let me just encourage you, every single day, meditate on the miracle of your salvation until it means something to you. Like, don't just rush past it. Every single day, wake up and sit with the Lord. Meditate on the miracle of your salvation until it means something to you. 
until it moves you, until your heart is overwhelmed with gratitude towards God, and then pray for opportunities to tell others about the miracle God has done in your life. I'll close by sharing this. Several years ago, I went and saw a movie called 127 Hours. 127 Hours was a movie about uh, a guy named Aaron Ralston, true story, who was hiking in Utah, and as he was hiking, a massive boulder got dislodged and fell into this crack, and it, tra- it, it crushed Aaron's arm and pinned him inside of this canyon. And Aaron spent five days alone in this canyon, trapped under this rock. And the movie just kind of chronicles all the different things that Aaron tries to save himself and to move that rock. And in the end, the the resolution is that Aaron takes his pocket knife and he cuts off his arm, this true story, and he saves himself. And I just want you to know that our story is similar to Aaron's in the sense that every single one of us was born pinned under the boulder of sin that separates us from God. Every single one of us was born pinned under the weight of our sin, but the story diverges in where the resolution comes because it doesn't matter what you try, there is nothing that you can do to save yourself, period. Nothing you can do to save yourself. So it comes back to that question, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, do you know what your answer should be? You, Jesus, became a man. You, Jesus, the all-powerful, appeared powerless. You, Jesus, were crucified like a criminal. You, Jesus, endured the punishment that my sin deserved. You, Jesus, conquered by being conquered. You, Jesus, overcame the grave. You, God, initiated with me. You, God, called me. You, Holy Spirit, convicted me of sin and illuminated my mind to the truth so that your gospel wasn't foolish but power. You, Holy Spirit, brought my soul to life and through your death, your burial, and your resurrection, you, Jesus, have given me righteousness. You have made me holy and you, Jesus, have set me free. Your salvation is a miracle. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that that truth would mean something to us this morning. If there are hearts in the room that know you, but are calloused or unmoved by that truth, I pray that they wouldn't leave this place without you stripping the calluses off their hearts, that this week would be full of gratitude for our salvation, Lord. And if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, may they sense in this moment that you are calling out to them, calling them by name, inviting them to come and to know you as Lord and Savior. May they put their trust in you this morning. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. When we could do nothing, you did everything. You get all the credit. 
Our salvation is a miracle, and we say thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.